Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hello, hello, High Truth listeners. It's always a pleasure to join you for a specialty-oriented High Truths conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. I want to talk to you about specialty services available at most hospitals. As an emergency physician, my specialty is available 24-7, 354 days a week, and by federal law, we take care of any patient that walks through our doors regardless of condition or ability to pay. What if you come to the hospital with a broken bone? You'll be connected with an orthopedic specialist, a heart attack, a cardiologist. Intractable complex pain, you may be connected with a pain specialist. End of life care, palliative care, consultation can be requested. What if you come to the hospital with endocarditis from using drugs? You'll be admitted to the hospital. You'll see a cardiologist because you have a heart infection. You'll see an infectious disease specialist. And if you have a kidney issue, a nephrologist may be called. You'll be treated by a hospitalist physician who will coordinate care from all specialties. You'll get medical care with intravenous IV antibiotics for six weeks. But will you see an addiction specialist? Probably not. The hospital will be taking care of everything related to endocarditis, the heart infection, but not the root cause of that infection. While at the White House, we promoted the specialty of addiction medicine along with the concept of addiction medicine services. We have the demand today for addiction medicine treatment that will fill a consult service at every large hospital in America. We should invest in that service. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Lev. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rohith. I am a third year resident in San Diego. I first met Dr. Lev when I was rotating through the emergency department as an intern, March 2020. It was a very frightening time when there were no vaccines. We didn't have enough PPE. We didn't have enough N95s to go around. And it was a challenging time, but Dr. Lev and I, we spent a lot of time side by side trying to figure out the best way to tackle the COVID pandemic at that time with very, very sick patients and a lot of uncertainty. So we've built a very friendly relationship since that point. Um, And I consider her a very close colleague and friend at this point. Um, My biggest concern now is, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of a glimmer of hope with the end of the COVID pandemic, or at least we have some good therapeutics and we have some uh, great vaccinations that are available to the mass public. Um, But really my concern is what is the next greatest thing that will be affecting our healthcare system today? And how will that shape the future of healthcare? Thank you so much, Dr. Kanna. Congratulations on graduating from residency and acceptance to GI fellowship. It was very memorable to work with you at the beginning of the pandemic. We were dressed in multiple masks and headgear and shields, ready to go in uh, to our death on behalf of uh, helping in this pandemic. 
We had very interesting conversations way back then. Uh, your first year, you had your eyes on gastroenterology and were very interested in the GI symptoms of COVID patients. And uh, that was successful because here you are now accepted as a GI fellowship, um, pursuing your dreams. To answer your important question, I've invited one of the top leaders of healthcare in the United States, Scott Becker. Scott Becker is partner in the healthcare department at McGuire Woods. He's founder and publisher of Becker's Hospital Review and Becker's Healthcare, a go-to news media information for hospitals and anyone in healthcare. He represents hospitals and health systems, health companies, surgical center chains, large practices, and private equity funds. Scott is a Harvard Law graduate and certified public accountant. You could find Scott Becker's bio on the High Truth show notes. Scott Becker, welcome to High Truths. Dr. Webb, thank you so much for having me. Excited to get a chance to visit with you this afternoon. Thank you. I'm very excited for this conversation. And you are a podcast host and and writer, um, healthcare uh, media person. So you're always asking the questions. So how uh, delightful it is to be able to for me to ask you some questions. And, and, and a total pleasure. I've had a chance to interview a couple times and just brilliant. So a pleasure to get a chance to uh, to be on the other side of it. Have you asked me questions? So very much excited to visit with you. Yes. And thank you so much. It was really an honor to be part of uh, Becker's uh, podcast and, and have me on your show a couple of times. And shout out to the person who connected us, um, John Holston, um, who made this all happen. So mutual friend. Yes. As good a person as they come, John Holston, as good as they come. Absolutely. And so, Scott, tell us about yourself. How does a Harvard lawyer accountant become a leading voice in healthcare? Sure. So this is a this is a, a great and fair question. So going back about 30 plus years ago, I started a very small media effort. At that point, I was in my 20s. Now I'm much, much older. And, and the concept was to I was a lawyer practicing law at a large firm. And, and I was sort of working on building a following in healthcare as a lawyer, to be known as an expert, a thought leader in healthcare uh, as a lawyer. And then what happened is, as I started to dabble in that and do that, it, it, several years into it, it, it started to look like there was an opportunity, not just to use this as a branding marketing type of concept, but, but far more to become sort of a media company in healthcare. And, and at some point, 25 years ago, we flipped the switch from being sort of some kind of branding or thought leader effort to truly becoming a media company in healthcare. And so that's where we're at today. And, and you know, now we have 100 employees, we've got um, four or five main areas, hospitals and health systems, health IT, surgery centers, orthopedics and spine, then a number of other sub areas within that, that, that fall within those categories. And we're in digital, you know, digital media. We've got big conferences. We just had a conference where Magic Johnson, Peyton Manning spoke. We've had Bill Clinton. We've had George Bush. We've had a whole host of uh, Hillary Clinton, Nikki Haley. We've had a whole host of political people and celebrity people speak, as well as the core of it, which is hospital and health system leaders or physician leaders and so forth. But it, it sort of it started as something else, like many things do, and then turned into a real media business. And it's been just a great pleasure, you know, a labor of love and a, and a fabulous pleasure and a great chance to visit with a whole range of fascinating people that we've never get a chance to visit with, but for Becker's Healthcare. That's awesome. And uh, actually, I was invited one time to speak at Becker Spine Conference when I was at the White House. So that was uh, that was a, a great uh, conference in Chicago. No, and we're, we're thrilled to have you speak and would always love to have you speak again. Our, our Spine Conference is one of our core areas. We'll be doing that conference. It's the 19th year. It's coming up again in June. But no, fascinating. It gives us a chance to be sort of the, you know, the, the business here, the business news of what's going on in spine. And it's a great, a great, you know, meeting place for physicians, for leaders, for people in the area to, to figure out what's going on, what the next steps are and all those things. So, no, we love it. We, we absolutely love it. And do you still practice law? Do you still take cases or your firm does cases? So, I, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a great question. I, mean, I sort of look at it as just simplistically built my law practice in my 30s and really with the whole team built the law practice in my 30s built the media coming in the 40s and, and now sort of straddle both of them to an extent i don't like when people say to me you should handle my transaction you should handle my case i would say to them well that would be malpractice because we really want the the, the partners in my firm the junior people in my firm 
that are fully engaged every day practicing to handle that, to handle the actual deal. But we're very much called upon and, and do lots of strategy discussions, lots of consulting. You know, spent last night a couple hours on the phone with a client on what they're going to do, what they're looking to do with their business enterprise and so forth. So we do a lot of counseling, but the hardcore deal work is done by our people that do it full time. You just you just can't do it at the level it has to be done if you're straddling multiple worlds as I do. So so we're still very, very involved, but we we really let the people that are doing stuff 100% of the time, handle the deals, handle the transactions, handle the litigation. That's who's best suited for it today. Right. And your law firm handles cases for hospitals, um, clinics, doctors? Yeah, I mean, all those things. The law firm is a is a um, one of the largest 20, 30 law firms in the world. So it's a large, large law firm. Within that law firm is a healthcare group, healthcare and life sciences group, all kinds of different groups. But the, but the firm does everything. It's, it's a large, large firm. I mean, you know, uh, it, Thousands of lawyers, big big firm, all those kinds of things. And one of the areas is is healthcare, and there we'll be representing either either hospitals and health systems, chains of surgery centers, uh, larger physician groups, private equity funds that invest in healthcare, lenders, all kinds of different participants in the healthcare you know ecosystem. We got it. And so, really, with with your with your media group, we get to talk to people um, all over the world and all facets of of healthcare. Um, so you're the perfect person to answer the question that Dr. Rohit Khanna asked, which is, what is healthcare's leading issues today? Sure. So it's it's a it's a great question. There's there's sort of gestalt issues that you see all health systems facing. You see this more and more being reported of, you know, it, very simplistically, and I'll go through three or four different issues. Revenues sort of softening, still not going down, but revenue softening but costs going up significantly. So labor costs, supply costs, device costs, everything people systems need to, to deliver care going up and, and the, the revenue is not going up nearly as fast. So you're seeing large systems, I mean, Mass General Brigham just recently reported that they're trying to cut 70 million in cost a year because they're just costs are going up significantly. Another health health system just reported uh, almost a billion dollar loss for the first quarter, a, a large, large system. So you've got this juxtaposition of revenue slowing down, cost going up significantly. So that's one set of issues. The second set of issues, which is tied into this, is all systems in our nation as a whole facing serious shortages of healthcare professionals at, at really every level, at the physician level, specialist, primary care, at the uh, you know nurse level, the, the allied health professional level. Every single place throughout the ecosystem, we're facing this juxtaposition of a Growing and aging population, 330 million people, in a in a healthcare education system that is not sort of kept up with the growth in our population and the aging of our population, and and also you've had a lot of people that don't really want to be living in the bedside care world anymore, uh, and yet that's still a very important care component. So you've got financial issues, you've got workforce issues, obviously. You live in the world of behavioral health issues, and we obviously have throughout our country an explosion of concerns around behavioral health of all sorts of, you know, uh, you know, opioid epidemics at the worst point ever. Uh, and just, just but but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, you know, all of us facing different kinds of mental health issues uh, across the spectrum. But, but you could go on and on about big issues, but I'll, I'll, I'll touch on those three, you know, huge workforce shortages, probably structural challenges with the healthcare education system. Uh, health systems providers all seeing slowing revenue and increased expenses, and, and third, just a burgeoning amount of of mental health and behavioral health issues, you know, throughout the universe. And so, given those challenges, I I wonder how stable do you see our our healthcare system? I think, and and you know this better than I do, but I think we're known as having the most expensive healthcare system in the in the on the planet. I don't know if it's the best, but how stable is it? Yeah, so it's it's a great question. I mean, people say, you know, it, it, the comparisons of the health system are very complicated because when people look at it, and I'll just take one divergence on that, is we have 330 million people. So after China and India, we have the third largest population in the world. And when people say, well, you should compare us to a country that has 10 million people or 12 million people or 20 million people, it's it's a 
it's an unfair comparison. So we, we have, my view of the world is we have a great health system, but an imperfect health system. We have a great health system. We've got lots of challenges, lots of challenges, lots of challenges. Now that's sort of the starting point on it. The next point on it is a very important point. When you look at these countries with larger population than us, they've had to make a transition and they have no choice on making that transition. They've had to make a transition towards much more of a preventive care model. So if you're in India, where there's four to five times the population we have, you know, people estimate that the population is really a billion four, billion three, billion five. They don't really have an exact number, but that it's four or five times larger than our population. Yet they don't have more doctors and providers than we have, which is really a, a real challenge. But what they've had to do, and China's done the same thing, is they've had to be much more aggressive about pushing preventive healthcare. Because the reality is, if you have the dearth of providers on the back end, you just can't take care of people when they get very sick. There's just not enough people. So you'll have to be much more aggressive about preventive efforts. And in our, our, our country, I don't, I don't see it collapsing under the weight of it, but if you looked at sort of India's situation last summer when they saw a really bad COVID wave, they just didn't have the capacity to take care of it. And, and, and we need to sort of both work on our capacity. We've got to fix medical education. Medical education is great. It just takes too long. It is way too efficient for what we're doing uh, and, and a lot of levels. We, we also need to move heavily towards a preventive care perspective because you just are going to end up at a spot, you know, whether a pandemic or just a regular care, you don't have the providers in the back end to take care of the amount of people we have. I mean, you already see that very acutely in the behavioral health world, you know, it, and you also see it very acutely in the specialist world. You know, both of us largely know, at least I know, if I need to see a specialist, I, I need to know somebody. And, and that's a bad situation to be in. You know, that's a, you know, to access the right specialist, you've got to call somebody, you've got to call somebody who knows somebody, and that's not where we want to really be as a nation. So you've got medical education problems, you've got the transition to, to preventive health, we've got this concept that we've got to figure out I think many of us believe, maybe we didn't believe before, but we believe it now, that many of the major health systems are too big to fail. We can't afford to them fail. You know, like, like I look at Northwell in, in New York, they served more COVID patients, I think, than any other system. If not for them, we would have had a disastrous situation, a more disastrous situation. And so you've got the situation where you've got We've got to figure out a way, way to support the health systems because we need them in certain situations while we constantly work on evolving care models and fixing some of these very major problems. Um, so is it is it is it set to collapse? It could collapse. Collapse is probably too strong a word. You've got another real challenge. You know, I, I, I talked to a nurse leader the other day, and essentially the nurse leader is interviewing so many people that want to do anything but bedside care. And so as you figure out how to better, and there's people working on solutions. How do you leverage nurses so that a nurse can be augmented or supplemented by other people doing bedside care? But you know, at the end of the day, when we do have a serious problem, we all want to be taken care of. So there's all these solutions that people are working through, but I mean, you could certainly end up with challenges where you just don't have enough bedside nurses, enough of this, enough of that, enough of different things. And you see that throughout the country, another hospital today announced they're cutting the behavioral health services because they don't have the staffing to provide the behavioral health services. And that was a hospital in Idaho. You know, and you've got this, again, this great juxtaposition of small systems and large systems. Many large systems can weather through this stuff. Many small systems just can't. You know, they have to cut services when they end up with staffing problems, and other large systems can afford not to do that. So you do have, I don't know if you have a collapse of the system. I don't see that, but you do have serious, serious challenges. Yeah. I mean, so, so, sometimes I, I question myself after practicing for 30, 40 years whether I am in a first world country, right? If I'm like, oh, we have no IV contrast um, for CAT scans now. And I <laughs> I worked, I, I saw a patient the other day, and I said, these hands are better than a CAT scan. I could tell you you have appendicitis. I don't. Um, but, right, but you know, we don't really want to go back to 100 years ago when you couldn't right. use imaging for stuff. You know, if you have orthopedic care today, we had different, you know, you know, an orthopedic physician won't prescribe PT until they could see what's going on, until he or she could see what's going on with, with an image, with, and, and rightfully so. Because, I mean, if you, if you could see it and know if I do PT and it's already torn, I'm going to really mess that person up versus not. I mean, there's just like things like that where we've ended up inadvertently which is the whole host of supply chain challenges that, you know, they were never any 
anywhere near the problem they were pre-COVID, so we didn't anticipate them. You know, nobody anticipated but, but a lot of But even pre-COVID, I think we had, okay? We, we ran out of intravenous opioids uh, pre-COVID. And, you know, our listeners may be yeah. interested to know that, yeah, we actually have a shortage of some opioids and we had to make adjustments. And it seemed like every day, okay, today we're out of tetanus or today we're out of penicillin. Uh, right now we're out of IV contrast. Um, it's it's, it's interesting. I think COVID made it worse. COVID made it worse. And we've also like what happened is in, in the nation, in the world, everybody had moved towards these concept of just-in-time inventory. And, and the idea was to streamline inventories, make places more efficient and so forth. And those all are beautiful on a spreadsheet, but become problematic in any sort of emergent situation. Because all of a sudden you're, you're, you're short stuff. You're just, you don't have it. And so, you know, it, it causes people to rethink so much of these efforts that were made towards just-in-time inventory, Lean Six Sigma, all kinds of things that were aimed at really, you know, you and I know when you talk about burnout, burnout, one of the easiest ways to solve burnout is enough capacity so people could have time off. If people can't have time off, you could do all the massages, all the counseling, all the different things you want to do. But if they can't have a break, it's hard to solve burnout. And, and, and a lot of these have to do with just capacity. You need to have enough capacity of everything to be able to give people a break, to not, to not squeeze the system too hard or, or squeeze people too hard. Yeah. You mentioned medical education. I have two daughters in medical school. What needs to be fixed in medical education? Well, so, so my perspective is, and you, you know the stats as well as I do then, like this past year, 51,000 applied to medical school, 20,000 got in. 20,000 people starting medical school in a country, 330 million, just too small a number. So that's one issue. The second thing is, and you know, because you went through a full specialty, typically four years of medical school, four years of residency, maybe a year to a fellowship, and I don't know your exact track of what it was, but you have most people- Forever, even, it's forever. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's forever, and it's built on a system. It's built on almost a system from 50 to 100 years ago of a system when people were sort of really doing almost, um, God, I, I, I'm missing the phrase, where you're learning on the job, where you're doing these long residencies and so forth. And, and, and my sense is- Apprenticeships. Apprenticeship, yes, got it. Spacing on the wheels when I was as I get older. But what what happens is so much of this was built on an apprenticeship model going back a long time ago. In today's world, it's much more important to people to find information than it is to know everything from being an apprentice for ten years. And and we've built a system that's so outdated. It produces great doctors, but can we do so in a much more efficient way? Is the question. And, and my guess is that we can. You know, you know. I mean, you know. I went to law school for three years. The law school could be two years without missing a beat. You know, just it is what it is. Medical school, you've already got some schools moving from four years to three years. And, you know, could you do that? Could you make it three years and three years residency and probably not miss a thing? Probably by being far more efficient in what you're doing. Probably. I mean, and, and so I, and, I and agree that, with and, you. And, and that's two years of people's lives. It's two less years of debt. It's sort of like, you know, would we miss a thing? I think not, quite frankly. You know, and again, I, I, so not, I don't even find that many people that disagree with me that strongly. Most people in the medical profession, et cetera. I mean, we've got a young pre-med daughter applying to medical school um, shortly. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I just watch the whole process. And then we've got, you know, her boyfriend's in the medical school, but it's a daunting several years. I mean, it's, it's a daunting it's, several it's, years. Uh, and it's, not, it's, horrific. it's not necessary. It's, 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 it's not necessary. <laughs> and it doesn't like, in, in if anything, so many things are not necessary. They're built by sort of professional guilds. They're built by apprenticeship programs. They're built for different reasons that are not really as, as relevant today and what we need to do. And, you know, for a very long time, we didn't have the shortages we have, but we didn't have the growth in population that we have and the aging of the population. So now you've got these horrendous shortages, you know. I mean, you're, you're in the behavioral health, psychiatric field. If you wanna see a psychiatrist actually talk to you, good luck. I mean, it's just not the, it, it just, they've had to move towards a level of efficiency where that's not what they do. They, they try and leverage themselves. So they, you know, they work side by side with somebody else that might do talk therapy, but you just don't, you just, there's just not the resources, not the people in, in so many specialties, so many areas. Uh, fascinating. I definitely agree with you. Uh, the greatest example of that is look at what training physician assistants do compared to 
you know, people gone through all the process of medical school, and at the end, sometimes they're doing the same thing with a lot less education. A, 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 a lot of the same things, and if they're plugged in and doing a good job and, and, and smart people, they're doing a magnificent job, you know, and more and more our population's used to getting used to seeing, I'm not seeing the doctor today, I'm seeing the PA. I mean, it, dentistry has taken this to like the most ridiculous degree in almost an offensive degree from a patient's perspective, where you see the dental hygienist and the dentist comes in for a minute and it feels like the dentist is coming in just to bill, but but they're, you know, it's a different sort of methodology and situation. But we do, even though the dentists have taken it to sort of, I think is sort of like a ridiculous degree, we do need to figure out these balances of leveraging people in the right way, but also improving education so it's quicker, it's faster, we get people through the system faster, and we're able to produce, you know, specialists and 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 and, and non-specialists both. Yeah, interesting. What about um, you know, COVID has kind of changed things as far as for a, a, a bit as far as COVID-related diagnosis. We kind of had universal health care, right? Anything COVID-related was kind of covered by the government. Did that make a push? And I know there's some people who want universal health care. Some people think it's terrible. Where where are we with that as a, a country? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a great great question. So. There, there's, we always distinguish between coverage and access, and they're two very different things. Coverage, we still have eight to 10% of the population that doesn't have, you know, that doesn't officially have coverage. And, and so as a country, we probably need to find a way to get those people coverage, whether through Medicaid, Affordable Care Act, some way or another, we should view it as a goal to get those people covered. And that gap is not that big a gap really, because in a, in a, in a moving world, you're always going to have a few people that don't have coverage just because they're displaced people almost. It's, so the real number you're looking at is 5 to 7% that don't have coverage. And we as a nation should find a way for them to get coverage. Now, and, and again, that's not Medicare for all. Medicare for all right now covers about more. Medicare covers about 14, 60% of the population doing this huge disruptive concept of making everything Medicare would be hugely disruptive. And I don't see it as the, the route from point A to point B. It's more of an incremental route. And I agree with President Obama. I disagree with him on certain things. At the end of the day, 10, 12 years later, I believe that the passage of the Affordable Care Act uh, and you know, however they did it ended up being the right decision. We cut the amount of people that don't have coverage in half uh, from 50, 60 million to 20 to 30 million. And not that I'm a huge fan of how it was done or anything else, but ultimately got us from point A to point B where we've closed that gap. It's a great so you're, example. You're, you, you like the plan because it closed the gap, but I just feel like Affordable Care Act, it's not affordable. It's not care. It doesn't provide care. It covers it, its it, money. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated issue. What it really ended up doing was expanding Medicaid. I mean, at the end of the day, if 25 million more people got coverage, 27 million more people got coverage, 20 million plus of those got it through Medicaid, through expanded Medicaid. It's just a, it's just a payment mechanism. So at the end of the day, I wasn't a fan of it when it was passed. At the end of the day, I'm thrilled that we've cut the number of people that don't have coverage down below 10%. And that real number is probably you know, somewhere around there, but, but or maybe a little bit less than that. But then I say coverage is part of the issue. The next issue you have to get back to is access. Even everybody has coverage. If we don't have enough doctors, nurses, professionals, it doesn't really matter. It's 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 on paper. We've solved one problem. We've really got to deal with the next problem, which is how do we produce, import, work with, change how medicine's practiced so that we have enough doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, everything to really take care of our population if we can get them all covered. So I, I, I mean, I, I will take one second. And the Medicare for all, there's two schools of thought. There's I, There's two very different polar opposites. There's a I, I, a, a Republican or conservative standpoint that says let the free market take care of things. And that's not really reality because 50% plus is already Medicare, Medicaid paid through the government. And then there's a Democratic side or a, a liberal side, the, the part of the party that says we need Medicare for all now, we need it now, we need it today. And that's not reality either because only 14, 15% are covered by Medicare. And the truth, of course, is somewhere in between as to how we get there. But I do find fascinating that once elections are over, leading up to elections, you have a huge amount of campaigning around Medicare for all about, we need to take care of this for our population, we need to do this. And then almost the moment that, almost the speed of light, 
the moment that an election is over, that is no longer discussed. I mean, it's really become, it was really, this past election was probably the shortest period of time ever that I ever saw the issues that were campaigned on as a platform be almost become non-existent the moment the election was over. And that's sort of a fascinating negative concept about our political environment as well. Let me ask you about um, relationships, relationships between uh, doctors and hospitals. So I had a group called uh, Independent Emergency Physician Consortium. We are um, independent group of physicians. We own our own business and we have a relationship with the hospital to provide services at emergency departments. A lot of doctors nowadays are, are employees of some big company, and we're still like the mom and shop, mom and pop shop who still want to have our own business and, and provide better care at our, at our community. Um, where are those relationships? Is a hospital see doctors as adversaries, partners? What do they expect? Um, you know, in, in yeah, that I, th I think that I think the world has changed so much. I think it, it the world has changed so much. If we went back 10, 20, 30 years ago. It, it, it was a very adversarial world. I, I remember talking to hospital administrator and listening to him talk to physicians and saying, if you don't join our system, we're going to bus in specialists to replace you. You know, that was goes back 20, 30 years ago. That world is just not existent today. I mean, there's still, obviously, there's these big conflicts you see periodically between big health systems and big physician groups. But, you know, you're at a spot now, 75% of all physicians are now employed one way or another, either through a health system or an optum or somebody else. So, so there's just a lessening of the amount of physicians that are truly independent. You know, it just, it's, and it's not nearly as adversarial world. I mean, the health systems very much, you know, we're at a spot where they don't have enough doctors. And so they're, they're you know, they, they have to figure out a way to manage relations with physicians. And I think the health system leadership job today, if in a small community hospital, it was very related to the 10 physicians that filled up that hospital or the, or the, the 10 that provided anesthesia services, or ER services and so forth. Now the health systems are mega complex organizations. And so the, 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 the pain points, yes, the doctors are very important, but a health system leader is facing so many other pain points as well. You know, he or she has to fill up, make sure the nursing staff, the allied health professionals, everything else is done. Uh, they're sort of getting back to sort of, are we trying to make certain specialties magnificent in our system? And there's so many different pieces of it today and there's, there's necessities. And so in the ER department and so forth, it's staffed either by a local group, less and less the model, uh, a national firm that, it, you know, that, that may have pluses and minuses, not be as tied to the community, but has an easier time getting more resources if there's a shortage or they can't find ER doctors. And then there's hospitals and employ their, you know, their ERAP physicians and so forth too. It's just all over the board, but it's not. Periodically, it gets adversarial. You'll, you know, you saw there was a case in, or, you know, a horrible situation. One of the health systems where they had a huge falling out with the anesthesia group, and then the anesthesia group, you know, doesn't want to be replaced. And you know, you have those kinds of things still happen, but it's it's less the um. It's less the norm than I'd say. That adversarialness is less the norm than it was 20, 30 years ago. You still have some of it, but it's not nearly as, you know, it, it, it's not the battle of the day as much as it was. Interesting. These perspectives are so important and fascinating. Another relationship, um, health plans and 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 physicians. So um, our, our group is in a lawsuit with Anthem Blue Cross because they um, flat out refuse to pay. And, and, and this is a policy that they've done again and again of just uh, not paying emergency visits. Like we as physicians, again, we I remember, you know, coming to a potential death during COVID. I know people forgot about that, but we did that and took the risk. And in return, um, Anthem has, as a policy, um, just flat out not paying emergency bills and saying they weren't emergencies. Um what is with that relationship and, and that model of, of health plans having such egregious practices? Sure. So I, I won't, I, again, I won't comment on what, what I won't comment on that specifically or, or so forth. What I will comment on is as follows, Dr. Webb, what, what you're seeing again, after a couple years of not so much tension between 
health plans and health systems, health plans and physicians, you are seeing a return to sort of the, the you know, lots of tension between health plans and health systems, uh, between health plans and physicians. You're just seeing another, you know, it, you know, we see more and more lawsuits, contract fights, negotiation problems between health systems and the big payers. And, you know, again, more recently, there's been a, a large increase in those. And, and you know, it, and it comes through in all kinds of different policy ways. It comes through in all kinds of contract ways and so forth. But you're, you're certainly you're returning to uh, that situation, you know, where, you know, what, what, what happens is you had this, I mean, for, for a whole variety of reasons, but you are seeing, again, a whole increase throughout the country in tensions between payers and health systems, payers and physicians. What's what's a solution to that? Do they do the health plans have um, too much power? So, do the health systems have too much power? I mean, maybe, probably, but it's it's what's a solution that I don't know. At the end of the day, you've got a very true supply and demand problem, which comes back to some things we talked about earlier. So, at the end of the day, you've got employers and and individuals and people that need healthcare coverage for their families. Uh, they want healthcare coverage for their families. They're getting it either as an employer, either through essentially their own managing their own healthcare benefits or buying it through United, a Blue Cross, some other type of plan. And then Blue Cross is turning around and buying the services for all practical purposes from physicians, health systems, all kinds of providers. So you've got employers here, employers up here, you've got health plans here, and you've got physicians, hospitals, everybody else here. Uh, and you've got the situation where, again, for a period of time, employers now, if you see it throughout the news, you see it in everything, uh, slowly rising revenues and highly quickly rising cost. So every employer in the world is facing the same problem. You know, Target reported earnings and, and Target, for example, had you know slowing revenue growth, but huge increases in cost, transportation, logistics, supply, staffing cost, and so the profits went way, way down, the stock went down 25%. And, and these things all tie together, and here's how they tie together. You got employers trying to reduce their healthcare costs, they turn to the health plans. Health plans are usually, in the old days, there might have been hot five health plans in the market, now there's typically one to two, a significant one and a secondary one, and the employers have to negotiate with them to get coverage, the employers don't want to switch coverage that often. They want to offer their employees a couple different options. So they try and drive down the ultimate cost of healthcare a little bit or drive down the, the, the escalation of it. And then the health plan turns around. The only way they can reduce their cost they charge the employer is by trying to reduce overheads or trying to reduce their cost of the inputs, which are the physicians, the health systems, and everything else. And so you've got this, you know, you've got this challenging situation. Health systems, physician groups are, are right at the very middle of this in that they've got, you know, again, same thing you see at Target, slowing revenue growth and increased cost. You know, so with whoever you're talking to, health systems, physician groups, they're all facing the same problem of slowing revenue group, slowing revenue growth uh, and and increased cost. And so you've got, you know, payers are right in the middle of uh, they're the middleman and all this stuff or the middle person and all this stuff. And so they, um, you know, and again, no empathy for the payers. The payers have been forever printing money, you know, like uh, like 100 years ago, when, you know, there was the idea of Clinton care, or Hillary care, whatever it was called, I might have had empathy for the payers, you know, thinking, oh, my God, it's not fair, this, that, the other. Of course, now, 30 years later, watching payers, payers seem to like, they're like the house in, in the casinos, they make money in the good, they make money in the bad, and they seem to continue to, you know, to make to mint money either way. Um, but but what you're really seeing is this issue. They're, they're the middle person between the you know employers on one hand or individuals on one hand and the and the providers on the other hand. And so it, it, they're they're playing a tough game, and yeah. they're doing it well. But they're playing a tough game. Yeah, and uh, and especially since you talked about burnout and um, healthcare shortages, that's quite not not the right way to to treat uh, your workforce. <laughs> well, and again and again, I I don't think like they um. Yeah, it's not even like the, the challenge is you've got this fascinating disconnect. Some of the big payers have their own workforce. You know, United has its own Optum, which is one of the largest employers of physicians in the country. Others don't, but it's the the um, you know it's a very challenging situation as to how they sort of 
ring in cost. Um, you know, and it and you you got physician comp went up last year for the first time more than in a long time, and and thank goodness. But it's it's it, a lot of it's supply and demand. You don't have enough physicians, and so you know, if you want somebody to take care of you, you better pay them. Yeah. So how does addiction and drugs rank in the many issues and discussions that we just had with with healthcare? Well, I think it's a complicated issue. Addiction, of course touches every family somehow or another. You know, just, it, it, I, it, I think you'd be hard pressed not to find a family that doesn't within a degree or two of separation have somebody that deals with addiction and mental health issues. Uh, from a health system perspective, what's happened is I would say from a health system perspective, it is more and more becoming integral to how healthcare systems view their role in the world. You know, for a very long time, I think health systems viewed it as like, it's kind of our issue. It's not really your issue. It's separately siloed into a different category of mental health, behavioral health, and so forth. And I think the last few years, it, it, much more so health systems view it as uh, mental health, behavioral health, all these issues are their issues as well. And, and again, it, it also depends a little bit on what region of the country you're in, where you're at, and so forth. The, the addiction crisis is real every place. It's been particularly acute in certain places in Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, rural areas, and so forth. And, and if you talk to CEOs or leaders or chief medical officers, or chief nursing officers in some of those communities, this has been very real and very close for a very long time. You know, it's, it's not like they just woke up to addiction. It's just been a very real issue for a long time. But I think as a, as a, as a whole, the healthcare ecosystem is, is much more focused on it. I mean, we, we had a discussion with a, chief um, lead psychiatrist of the health system recently and talked about how many different care coordinators they have, people they have, crisis coordinators that they have to deal with people coming in the ERs that have mental health issues, you know, compared to what they used to have and how many people they have full-time on staff to deal with crises care. And it just, it's, it's become a real issue. It's become just a much more front and center issue across the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I think that that'd be the number one issue um, for emergency medicine clinic clinically is, uh, is the issue of uh, mental health um, holds in the emergency department. We have people uh, living in our emergency department for weeks um, because there's no capacity for them. And this is another issue you see. This is another issue you see throughout the country. We've got health systems throughout the country, not just due to not just that, not just not just psychiatric care, but they've got no place to discharge patients who they used to discharge to long-term care, used to discharge to other places. There's no place to send patients. They end up playing that role as a health system more and more. Okay, so if you were to advise the administration on increasing addiction medicine services, and my um, the the vision is that just like a hospital has a palliative care service, um, they have an orthopedic service, a pain service, uh, we have enough capacity now to have an addiction, a demand now. We have enough demand now to have an addiction medicine sure. service throughout at every major hospital systems. What needs to be happen to make it happen? What financial incentives or um, uh, or funding would you advise to make that yeah, happen? Yeah, so I don't have a great answer to that. I know that when I talk to hospitals throughout the country, you know, many hospitals, there's tremendous shortages of psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and so forth. So I don't, I don't know the exact answer to that, but it's, it, it probably is similar to a lot of the other things we talk about is how do we make it easier to become a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a, a behavioral health specialist, whatever it might be, and not to make it easy, but to make it easier. And I, and I don't know, you know, and of course, many of these answers are several years away because even if we you know we've brought on a whole number of new medical schools the last several years much needed many many health systems bring on new medical schools the problem is even though they brought on new medical schools they've not brought on new residency spots and so we've got to fund the residency spots too and it's a similar effort that's got to happen in psychiatry and social work and psychology and a whole host of areas and just you know more and more of a focus around it you know and it's and it's challenging because you've also had the situation where as you know more and more for a long period of time, primary care physicians did a lot of this, um, just part of their job, part of their responsibilities, and you know, already an overworked population. Uh, and then, of course, 
got more and more scared to prescribe and do other kinds of things when they found you know, they didn't have really the the resources to prescribe right or really know what was being sold to them on the, on the behavioral health side. And so you've got this challenge of two of not overwhelming the primary care community, but working with the primary care community to, to help as well. So we, we actually do. So you, you, you bring up the issue of workforce for addiction medicine. We, we do have a solution for that. And that's one of the things that I did and worked on from the White House is the addiction um, medicine specialty is just a one year after residency. And you could be an OBGYN, a surgeon, a pediatrician, um, emergency physician. So that's a practice track of one year of training uh, to be uh, board certified in addiction medicine. And people like me, um, I'm board certified in, in emergency medicine, but I grandfathered in and was able to take the boards in addiction medicine. Which is phenomenal. Which so is we phenomenal. have that as far as workforce. And then workforce. you got to find enough interest in people wanting to do that as well. Yeah, and you know, change, midlife change, career, whatever. So that so I think we ha- we're working on the workforce issue. I don't know if we solve the the financial incentive issues for hospitals to create um, that that service. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure we've not as of this point for sure. But hospitals right now, you know, you saw a record low number of hospital closures the last couple of years because there was so much stimulus funding and COVID funding and CARES Act funding and so forth, I think there's huge concern in the health system community is that stimulus funding, is that CARES Act funding, is the PPP funding falls away, that you're gonna have hospital systems again financially underwater. And you're already starting to see that and that you're gonna go back to more and more hospital closures. So I think whatever you want to do in these areas or has to be done in these areas, there's gonna to have to be funding for it because health systems are already just really finding themselves in a challenging situation. Yeah, very interesting. So um, uh, opioids, responsibility of uh, doctors, hospitals, medical systems in the whole opioid crisis. What's the accountability? Yes. Well, you, yeah, you know a ton more about this than (laughs) I do, of course. I mean, you just do. So it's not a fair question. But I would tell you, you know, of course, I mean, we've, a lot of us have watched dope sick and the other sort of press about it. And, you know, obviously the behavior of some of the pharmaceutical companies was abhorrent. Uh, There was a a behavior of some level of pain management physicians, some level of physicians. It's very hard to put a number on that, you know, whether that's a small percentage, a large percentage that were sort of complicit in this. But, you know, you you look at that as probably a relatively small percentage of huge that were running sort of opioid mills and so forth. I, I do get the sense, you know, as I, as I talk to people like you and others, that much less of this is really created today by overprescribing from surgery and, and, and more of it comes the old fashioned way through drug addiction problems and other kinds of issues than truly driven out of over abundant prescribing from surgery, you know, truly trying to manage somebody's pain through opioids and that it, the health system community as a whole is far more cognizant of that than they were, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah, we we were. Uh, and I think I was part of the problem of over prescribing. That's what we taught to do. I think the silver lining in this whole problem is that the medical community has now been engaged in solutions for the problem of addiction as a whole, which we never were really before. It was just like you were saying, that was that other specialty pushed it aside. And now it's 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 in front of us for all of us in medicine um, to deal with. Be- because we were proud of the problem, I don't think we are anymore. I think the data shows that the opioid prescription problem is over, that has ended. Um, and all the rise in fentanyl deaths are from uh, illicit um, use um, rather from the medical community, but the medical community is now engaged in solutions. One of them that uh, you were so kind to have me on your podcast to talk about fentanyl testing in as part of a urine drug screen in hospitals, something that all hospitals can do now. No, fascinating. Yeah. And then the other things we talked about, what we really also really learned from the opioid prescription epidemic is we saw a beginning of it, how it started, and we also see how it ended. And it ended from prevention. And that comes back to what you said at the very beginning about healthcare in general with countries who don't have resources investing in prevention. That's how we ended opioid prescription. We didn't end it by doing more treatment and suboxone, which is also important, but we ended it by front-end prevention. And I think that that's the answer to um, the whole issue of drugs also 
is uh, a lot more heavy on prevention and investment. Could not agree more. Final leadership advice. As a leader in healthcare, what is uh, your advice to um, people who want to be leaders in the healthcare arena? Yes, this is a great question, and and thank you. It's a question I'm ill-prepared to answer, but I'll give it a shot. So when we talk about leaders, leaders have to have this mix of sort of like, and people talk about it all the time now, it's sort of communication skills, relationship skills. They have to have great emotional intelligence. They also need to set a direction of clarity of what you're trying to accomplish, what the group is trying to accomplish. Uh, they've got to be motivated. They've got to be probably more motivated than the average person to to because leadership and taking care of people and taking care of organizations moving in the right direction takes serious time and effort. So we always look at people and think about people that are leaders as, you know, a little bit of uncommon drive, great relationship skills, probably fairly intelligent. They don't have to be brilliant, but they got to be good at it. And the intelligence has got to bleed over very much into emotional intelligence and how they deal with people, you know, versus just, you know, academic or, or uh, analytic sort of intelligence. It's sort of this mix of stuff. And, and, you know, and obviously if you want to be a leader, you just have no choice, but to work on your com- communication skills, your writing skills, your speaking skills, they don't have to be perfect, but they've got to be able to convey what you're trying to convey. You know, you don't have to be William Shakespeare, but you got to be good enough to, to deal with people in, in a way where they can understand what you're trying to say and, and, and do it in a, in a positive way. We look at, you know, several different characteristics of people that want to be leaders and it, and it, you know, to do it right takes work too. That's great advice from uh, a national leader. And I want to say thank you to Dr. Rohit Khanna, future medical leader. I am just so proud of you. Um, it has been a, an honor to, to work with you. And I wish you um, blessings of a successful meeting career as you graduate from your residency. Long path now into fellowship. We talked about how long it takes to go um, through this medical education process. And and um, Rohit went through medical school for a residency, and now he's choosing to do more in uh, GI medicine. Um, and uh, he's going to be a great physician, the kind that I would send my family to. And, and Scott Becker, thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation. We learned about hospitals and healthcare, really a global view. I know we usually talk about specific drug and addiction issues, but this is the system that takes care of that. So I think this discussion has been so important. Um, I hear you use the word brilliant. You're brilliant, uh, Scott, and I really appreciate your insights um, and having you join us in this conversation. Thank you. That's a liberal use of the word brilliant, but I appreciate it very much. And Dr. Lev, thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure to visit with you always. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their medical library, translated for public understanding, Listen to their speaker series and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Mm-hmm.